Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from Policy Matters Ohio about the state's income tax policies. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has information about redistricting. The Reagan-Tokes Act, which aims to crack down on the monitoring of convicted sex offenders when they're released from prison. And an update on body cameras for the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the head of the Clintonville Area Business Association. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me, Dr. Guillermo Bervahicio. He's a state policy fellow at Policy Matters Ohio. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, first, uh, in a nutshell, tell us about Policy Matters Ohio. What is it? Sure. Policy Matters Ohio is a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan think tank. It's been around doing statewide policy issues for over two decades now. And uh, we generally are seeking to promote economic policy, social policies that um, move us towards a more sustainable, equitable future here in Ohio. Okay, and it's nonpartisan, but would it be fair to say that you lean left or progressive? Some would say that we are are progressive. That's that's fair. I think uh, our main our main focus is to get beyond the left and right divide and and think about the kinds of policies and policy decisions that can benefit all kinds of working class families. Um, be they from rural Appalachia or urban Columbus. Okay. And you are the author of a new report from Policy Matters Ohio and the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy that looks at tax policy changes in Ohio and how that has changed the field of revenue. And it's pretty significant. That's right. I recently wrote this report. It's, it's based on a study of the tax changes that have happened over the past 17 years since Governor Taft's uh, 2005 state budget bill. And basically, the study uh, tries to measure the impact of all these different tax policy changes from personal income tax changes to gas tax changes on households of different income levels and trying to determine how uh, how much it's affected their, their, daily, their yearly budget. Governor Taft, uh, as you mentioned, he was one who started to put an emphasis on lowering the state income tax rate, and then when Governor Kasich came along, he kind of doubled down on it after Governor Strickland, in between, put a halt to it. That's correct. There's been, in the past couple decades, a trend towards decreasing personal income taxes, flattening them out, removing the the, uh, the brackets, and um, basically moving towards uh, uh, a flatter system. Uh, this This my study shows that this has led to a decrease in taxes for most people in terms of personal income taxes. But the issue is that the vast majority of these taxes have gone to the the wealthy or the uh, the the upper the upper income uh, echelons. So since two, since 2005, the the total value of the total value of these personal income taxes. 76% has gone to the top 20% of households. That means people who are making over $107,000 a year are paying about $5,500 less in taxes today than they used to. Um, and the, the, the impact for the impact and changes for personal income taxes for a, a lower income household, or for the majority of households actually, is very small. On the other hand, the wealthy is the, the wealthiest 1% of Ohio 
has received nearly a third of the total value of personal income tax cuts. So the issue is that when we have uh, across-the-board income tax reductions, uh, it benefits the wealthy more than it benefits uh, everyday Ohioans. And I know this has been an issue that Policy Matters Ohio has talked about for years and, and sometimes breaks it down in ways that from one year to the next, if there's a you know, a few percentage points reduction in the state income tax, it might make the difference of a tank of gas and cost for a low-income person, maybe not even that, and thousands of dollars for wealthy Ohioans. That's correct. Uh, our, our most recent study shows that the, the overall changes um, in tax, in tax uh, the overall tax changes have led to uh, the poorest households uh, paying about $164 more in taxes per year, which is about you know a week or two weeks of groceries for a family. Uh, but on the other hand, the wealthiest households, the wealthiest 1%, are paying about $51,000 less in taxes today, which means that they could afford another uh, luxury car, perhaps a Tesla, perhaps something of those of that range. Talking with Guillermo Bervahisho, he's with Policy Matters Ohio and the author of this report. You know, Governor Kasich used to talk about how reducing the state income tax would keep wealthy Ohioans in Ohio rather than moving to a state like Florida, which has no state income tax. And is there any validity to a thought like that? These kinds of policy changes have always been couched in in romantic divinations and future, you know, fortune tellings and ideas of flowers falling from the sky and, uh, you know, rivers turning to wine. But the truth is there's very little evidence that uh, that people respond to the, these types of incentives. In fact, I've seen reports that show that the majority of decisions that uh, businesses make about where when they're relocating uh, has to do with the quality of the of the infrastructure, the education of a of a population, rather, and those are the things that you know, public services provide, public taxes pay for, uh, rather than uh, you know a few hundred dollars more or less that they could uh, save in taxes. It seems like sort of the undertone of of some of these reports are that. It isn't necessarily that it's a whole lot of money for these very rich people. It, it's actually an amount of money that that they could miscalculate or lose easily in their checking account and not even realize they have it. But when you've got thousands of people this wealthy with that much money, it adds up to billions of dollars that the state's losing to them. That's correct. $8 billion a year. That's how much more money we would have in this state uh, if we had the this, this same taxation structure as 2005. And as you correctly point out, $51,000 is only about 3.5% of a, of a wealthy person's income, of a, you know, the top 1% of Ohio. But for a family, $51,000 could be a year and a half worth of income or more. The, top, the bottom 20% of Ohio has an average income of $14,000. So compare $14,000 to $51,000, you can kind of get the idea of what we're talking about. As far as the total, the cumulative impact, $8 billion, could just, it could have such an amazing, uh, such a deep impact on communities all across the state. Just this past year in 2021, the state, uh, the state, the General Assembly passed a uh, fair school funding formula that's trying to deal with the unconstitutionality of of the school funding formula here in Ohio, and they passed it. It's law, but they weren't able to find the the funds for it because we don't have enough revenue. But to play devil's advocate with you, you know, 
When it comes to t- tax cuts, uh, most people think tax cuts are a good thing for, for just about everybody. And an argument would be the wealthy pay the most in taxes, so shouldn't they get the biggest tax break? So it's actually not true that the wealthiest pay uh, the most. The wealthiest people in Ohio pay a smaller share of their income than the poorest people in Ohio. The, the, our latest, our, our last report on this, uh, on these numbers, showed that the low, the bottom 20% of Ohio pay about 12% of their ta- of their income in total taxes, while the rich pay uh, about half that, like around 6% of their income in uh, in total taxes. So, it's actually the poorest people in this state pay the most. And so, when people when when the popular sentiment of Ohio t- trends towards uh, wanting, wanting to lower taxes, it's actually because the system itself, the taxation system that our policymakers have put in place is perversely um, working against people's natural instinct to contribute to their, towards their community. I think all Ohioans uh, from all corners of the state would agree that we feel a sense of pride when we can contribute to our community. We seek it out. We, you know, we give help where we can, and we usually think ask for nothing more than gratitude and response. Now, the taxation system, which is the way that we provide, uh, we provide for our communities across the state, perversely uh, distorts that to such an extent that we feel the poorest people in this in the state are paying uh, much more of their income than the richest people in the state. And, and they, feel, they feel like it is unjust. They feel like it's not fair, and it's totally justified. On the other hand, the richest people in this state, which have the, the, pockets, the pockets and the ears of the, of the legislators in the Statehouse in Columbus, are using their position to maintain their, their benefits. Uh, the, the changes in the taxation structure have made it such that it's us, the, the people of Ohio, not the, not the business owners, or paying for the infrastructure and the social services that businesses in Ohio rely on. So in some sense, it makes sense that people are tired of taxing. It's because the taxation system that we have now is upside down. It weighs heaviest on the, on the working class, on everyday Ohioans, and it's as light as a feather on the richest of the rich. So when this passes at the state house, when state legislators uh, put this through at the governor's request uh, during budget time, are you of the belief that they are knowingly doing this, or do they simply not understand? I think the legislators, the policymakers, have been uh, have been misled uh, by uh, by economists and experts, but also they've been listening to the wrong people. They've been listening to corporate lobbyists. They've been listening to wealthy people. The truth is. They're severely mistaken. They've bought into uh, a, a mythology that is simply not real, and I think that um, I think they do not fully understand the the consequences of their actions. Before I, I ask you about uh, you know whether or not wealthy people would stay in Ohio as opposed to move to another state because of the income taxes are lower, and, and you thought that that was kind of a fallacy. What about when when there's a big announcement? that Intel is coming to Ohio to build this $20 billion semiconductor plant in central Ohio. Is that so far down the pike and low on the, you know, on the list for priorities for a company like that? The, the case for Intel is, is a perfect example. Uh, we have been sacrificing uh, the, the, the health, 
the education of our children, uh, the health of our communities, the thriving kind of activity of our communities for two, over two decades, all for something like Intel. It, the, the truth is that the direct development of director of Ohio, when she spoke about this in the most recent press conference, said that the tax incentives that are involved in the Ohio, uh, in the Intel investment were a piece of the puzzle, but they weren't everything. So at the end of the day, we're sacrificing the, the well-being of our communities for years and years on end for the crapshoot possibility of something like this coming through. This is a great, this is a great turn of events. I'm very glad that Intel is here. And I think that the jobs could, uh, could impact the New Albany community and surrounding areas. But the truth is, it would be much more impactful, one, if they were being taxed correctly, because they are receiving all kinds of tax breaks. But two, if we actually sought to foster uh, homegrown economic activity, if we sought to um, support the kinds of lives that the people, the kinds of economic ambitions, entrepreneurship that Ohioans have in of themselves. And I think that that kind of, in the larger scheme of things, that kind of strategy could be much better for the broader public than uh, something like this Intel chip factory. It doesn't make sense to hold our whole state hostage for the unlikely possibility that something like this would happen again. Talking with Dr. Guillermo Bervahisho. He's a state policy fellow at Policy Matters Ohio and uh, the author of this report talking about state income taxes and other tax issues in Ohio. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah. So one of the other elements of this is that uh, since the the overall impact of tax changes affects has made it more likely for people in the lowest 60 percent of Ohio to have increased taxes. This is particularly worrisome for people of color in Ohio. Uh, African-Americans and Hispanic Americans make up a disproportionate amount of the 60 per, the bottom 60 percent of Ohio. And um, which means that if you're an Ohioan of color, if you're a uh, black Ohioan or a Latino Ohioan, you're more likely to pay taxes now because of the changes since 2005 uh, than if you are a white person, unfortunately. And I guess from your point of view, the ironic thing about this is you would say this is coming all coming under the guise of a tax cut. Exactly. It all comes in the guise of a tax cut. It all comes in a guise of incentives for small businesses and so on. But the, the truth of the matter is that taxes and tax cuts are a poor development policy and uh, overwhelmingly benefit the rich at the expense of the poor. To put it in as summing, summing it up as shortly as possible, these changes since 2005 have let the, the people with the lowest incomes in Ohio to pay more in taxes, the wealthy to receive handouts, and the state to be drained of $8 billion of resources per year. Talking with Dr. Guillermo Bervahisho. He is a state policy fellow at Policy Matters Ohio. Uh, can folks find this report online? Absolutely. So you can find it online at our, at our website, policymattersohio.org. Excellent. Uh, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. All right. It's my pleasure to be here.
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices. You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel. Visit StopTextStopRex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. lawmakers to come up with yet another set of district maps. What this delay could mean for the May primary election and your vote. I'm moving on, but I won't stop standing up for what I believe in. U.S. Representative Joyce Beatty opens up about the incident at the subway train with another member of the House of Representatives. Why she says his apology was not good enough. And a push for change years in the making. The Reagan-Tokes Act passes the Ohio House. We look at the next hurdle for that piece of legislation. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Once again, the clock is ticking when it comes to drawing up the new district maps. And now the May primary is in jeopardy. This comes after the Ohio Supreme Court rejected the redistricting maps for a second time. By law, the maps must be redrawn every 10 years based on U.S. Census data. As 10TV's Kevin Landers explains, reaching a compromise is proving difficult. To borrow an analogy from the game of football, the Ohio Supreme Court is like the head referee in a political game called congressional redistricting, and it won't stop throwing a flag on the field for a foul. There's a football that's been tossed in the air, and there are all kinds of people, both receivers, I guess, to carry the analogy forward, both receivers and defensive backs, and maybe linebackers, uh, who are going after the ball. On one side of the field, you have Republicans, and on the other side, Democrats, each one attempting to draw up a play that will deliver congressional districts that are fair. How do you define 
what is a likely Republican district versus what is a likely Democratic district. Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose is like the commissioner of the league, except he's also a player because he sits on the redistricting commission. His job is to deliver a May 3rd primary, but without the congressional districts, the football, that can't happen. The longer that we go without having finality on these maps, uh, the more likely that things could go wrong. Is it possible that we could have a June primary if you don't get the information in time to conduct the May primary? I'm not going to make predictions about when the election is going to be told, uh, held. I can tell you right now what the law says is that it's my duty to conduct the election on May 3rd. The congressional maps now, it gives Republicans a 57-42 advantage in the House and a 2013 advantage in the Senate. But the Ohio Supreme Court says that's not good enough. It looks to me like the Supreme Court is saying what is fair is probably a 54-46 division. I've not seen a set of district lines that can, that can get below 57 Republican seats and still don't commit other violations of the Constitution. So where does that leave voters? For now, they don't know who to vote for until the Ohio Supreme Court approves a congressional map. The court has asked for another revision. If that doesn't work, the clock on this political football game continues to run. Kevin Landers, 10TV News. Now, to give you an idea of why the May primary date could be in jeopardy, Secretary of State LaRose tells us that it takes 90 days between filing day and election day, and that deadline is already passed. Plus, early voting is supposed to take 28 days before the election. We also talked about the state Supreme Court's ruling with OSU professor Richard Gunther. He helped write the amendment in 2015 that outlaws gerrymandering. Here's what he thinks of the latest maps. And what we saw with regard to both of the maps that were presented by the Republicans is something that is way off. Uh, and in, in fact, um, there was a new trick that was uh, included in the most recent gerrymander. Uh, it did, in fact, bring down from 62 to 57 the number of districts, quote, favoring uh, the Republican Party. But it also created a situation in which all of the new districts tending towards the Democrats uh, would be those that were in favor of Democratic uh, voters, uh, candidates in the past um, by less than 1%, which means a 1% swing would have shifted something like a dozen seats, bringing the Republican majority up to 71 out of 99. Uh, and if there were a 2% shift, in the direction of the Democrats, it still would not pick up any seats for the Republicans. And this notion of symmetry, as it's called in uh, the gerrymandering studies literature, uh, is clearly violated here. Uh, and this is an unfair map, without any doubt. And I'm pleased to see that uh, the court wants to defend the Ohio Constitution as it was amended by 70% of Ohio's voters. So we will keep you updated every step of the way as the commission meets to draw the new maps, download the 10TV app, and you can stay up to date as well. A campaign ad you may have already seen running right here in central Ohio claims Dr. Anthony Fauci can be fired by members of Congress. Is this true? To verify, 10TV's Lindsay Mills took this recent viewer question to the experts. That's why I'm endorsing Mike Gibbons for Senate. I'm Rand Paul. I know Mike Gibbons will join me in demanding that Fauci is immediately fired and removed from office. 
This is the latest campaign ad released for Senate candidate Mike Gibbons. It features Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who has been vocal in the call to lift COVID-19 health mandates. Viewer Dean Taylor saw the ad and asked our Verify team, can members of Congress in fact fire someone in a cabinet position? To verify if Dr. Fauci can be fired, our sources are two local political science experts, Paul Beck from The Ohio State University and Brianna Mack from Ohio Wesleyan University. They, they really cannot. Uh, he is in the executive branch. Dr. Fauci is a longstanding director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and President Biden chose him to serve as chief medical advisor. Now, what Congress could do is they could pass a bill to bring that particular institute under confirmation by the Senate. Uh, so the next time that it appointed somebody as its director, that person would have to be confirmed by the Senate. They can't do it retroactively. Fauci's not necessarily a member of the cabinet per se, right? He's in a position that was actually created by President Trump and remained vacant until Biden decided to bring it back in with his administration. The only way that they can be quote unquote fired is is if they are impeached. We can verify. No, members of Congress cannot fire Dr. Fauci. Have something you'd like us to verify? Send us an email to verify at 10tv.com. With your verify, I'm Lindsay Mills. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty is speaking out as she says another member of Congress poked her. Beatty says while she was boarding the congressional train, she asked Kentucky Representative Harold Rogers to put on his mask, which is required on the tram. She says in response, Rogers poked her in the back. And when she asked him not to touch her, he used an obscenity. Rogers released a statement saying that he met with Beatty to personally apologize and express his regret. Beatty says she had to demand that apology. I had gone to our leadership. I had also gone to the sergeant at arms and I said, I'm demanding uh, an apology. And so he did not come forth at first and our leadership uh, leader Steny Hoyer went over and talked with some of his colleagues and their leadership and him, and they said he would come over uh, and apologize. And so when he came to the floor to apologize, mind you, without a mask on, uh, I stepped back. And as he reached out to touch my arm, I told him, don't touch me. And I moved back because he didn't have a mask on. And so with that, he mumbled some words and I told leadership it wasn't acceptable. I wanted a public apology. And as Speaker Pelosi said, if you insult a high profile, you have to do a high profile apology. So I demanded a public apology. And that is when he publicly apologized. And I have accepted his public apologi apology and I'm moving on. But I won't stop standing up for what I believe in. And if you ride the train, then the message is you put a mask on or you walk. The Congressional Black Caucus is demanding Rogers face consequences for his actions. All eyes are on Russia and Ukraine right now. This as the rest of the world is working to put an end to the conflict. Ohio Senator Rob Portman suggests taking a bipartisan route to counter Russia's aggression toward Ukraine. Here's his plan to halt the chaos going on overseas. My hope is that Congress can come together and speak with one voice, Republicans and Democrats alike, pass bipartisan sanctions and legislation, and an aid package 
that sends a strong message of support to the Ukrainian people, a message that we stand with them in their fight for freedom, but also sends a strong message to Russia that if they choose to invade further, the armed conflict will carry a heavy cost. The sanctions will be devastating. And finally, legislation that sends a strong message to the world that the United States stands with its allies in Eastern Europe and throughout freedom-loving countries across the world. The time to speak is now with one voice. The world is listening and watching. The Consumer Price Index showed that prices climbed 7.5% in January compared to the previous year. That's the biggest jump in 40 years. Here's what Senator Sherrod Brown says needs to be done to fight inflation. First thing we need to do is confirm uh, five members of the Federal Reserve to make sure that the, all the Federal Reserve is in place. That hasn't happened in a decade. Um, that's the first thing. Second, uh, we need to go after those corporations, shipping companies, uh, institutional investors in housing who have used this pandemic uh, to fatten their profits. And there are there are thousands of cases of companies making much bigger profits than before the pandemic. Uh, using the pandemic and using our stumbles over the last three years as a country, using them to enrich themselves. And that means, in some cases, public embarrassment. In other cases, it just means standing up, using whatever antitrust tools the government has to make sure that these companies play, play fairer. Uh, I, I know that some will just say, well, it's government spending that causes inflation. The, the, the fact is, this is the fastest growing economy we've seen in 20 years. Our economy's grown faster than China's for the first time in 20 years. Millions of jobs were created um, because of the Recovery Act and this leadership with a new president, a new Senate. Um, but we've got to deal with inflation better than we have. The reagan Tokes Act passed a big hurdle up next. Here from her mother as she reflects on the legislation named for her daughter that's years in the making. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The Ohio House passed the reagan Tokes Act. It happened five years to the day since the murder of the OSU student. House Bill 166 now moves on to the Senate. Her mother says lawmakers' actions are long overdue. Lisa Tokes spoke exclusively with chief investigative reporter Bennett Haverly. 
Reagan Toke's murder was a test of perception versus reality. The perception that if a convicted sex offender like Brian Goldsby were released from prison homeless and assigned a GPS ankle monitor, that someone, somewhere, would monitor his activities, would know if he were committing a string of robberies. The perception that the state's parole authority would follow its own policies and put safeguards in place that would alert someone if someone like Goldsby did something wrong. The reality, that didn't happen. There are a lot of systemic failures that have to happen in order for this crime to occur. Representative Kristen Boggs reminded lawmakers of that before the House voted unanimously to approve House Bill 166, known as the Reagan Tokes Act. While a portion of the bill dealing with criminal sentencing already became law, this bill would beef up how ex-prisoners are monitored while reducing the burden of heavy caseloads on parole officers. It would also require that if someone like Goldsby was assigned a GPS ankle monitor, that there are boundaries in place, detailing where they can go and not go, a landscape that wasn't a reality when Goldsby kidnapped, raped, and later shot Reagan five years ago. It's so hard. I wish I was never put in the position to have to fight for something like this. But sitting back and doing nothing was not an option. Making a difference in this world to help other people from a tragedy still is the best course of action. We spoke to Reagan's mother, Lisa McCrary-Tokes, from her Florida home hours after the House voted to advance the bill. She told me it's been frustrating watching the bill fail in past sessions, but she has renewed purpose. It doesn't erase and it doesn't take away our pain and it doesn't take away anything that we've lost, but it does help others. And that is something that Reagan was so much about. So that is where I say I think she really would be proud and happy that we have continued to see this through and and stick with it. Reagan's death was not a one-off, but as we learned, it was part of a systemic pattern of women who had been killed by men under the watch of the state's adult parole authority. What's more, in Reagan's case, the failure to place guardrails on Goldsby's GPS appears to have violated the APA's own policy from 2016, the same year Goldsby was released, which states that the APA shall submit curfews and inclusion or exclusion zones within the first week of a release. You know, you really help uncover some of the brokenness and flaws that got our attention from the get-go to make us want to take action and not sit back and say, okay, this is okay, and I guess we just have to accept it. So thank you for your role and all of that. Lisa says she's hopeful that the bill created out of something tragic will advance and spark positive change. Continuing to shine light on the flaws and pushing for that. Unfortunately, it's been our torch to carry, but if it makes a difference and saves lives, we'll continue to carry that torch. Bennett Haberly, 10 Investigates. The union representing parole officers says they support the efforts, but argue the bill doesn't go far enough. They'd like to see more officers hired and real-time GPS added to the bill. 10 Investigates has been on top of this story from the beginning, playing a vital part in getting the bill passed. You can go back and see all of the coverage at 10tv.com slash 10investigates. The Franklin County Commissioners approved a plan to roll out body cameras for the Franklin County Sheriff's Office. The resolution includes a $2.5 million contract for body cameras and video storage supplied by WatchGuard Video Incorporated. But it's very vital. We all recognize the importance of having these body cameras for transparency for the Sheriff's Office. 
to make sure that the community has faith in the deputies and what takes place. We know that the national discourse is that there isn't a lot of trust between uh, members of the community and law enforcement. And so this is one step forward to help build that. Recently, the governor's office announced $4.7 million in grants for body cameras. Franklin County Sheriff's Office is expected to get the most money, more than $232,000. Grove City and Hilliard are both set to get more than $58,000. The new retirement incentive program for Columbus police officers is moving forward. As 10TV's Lacey Crisp reports, with FOP President Keith Farrell, hundreds of officers applied. She looks at how you could be impacted. More than 200 members applied for the retirement incentive program at a time when the department is already understaffed. During contract negotiations with the Fraternal Order of Police, the city offered a retirement incentive program to Columbus police officers, an option for 100 members to receive a one-time $200,000 buyout to leave the department. The program is offered to commanders on down through the ranks. Last year, 140 officers left the department 50 officers were hired. The division is going to have to do something. Uh, we are already down several hundred officers uh, without question, um, losing another hundred of tenured people and, and potentially supervisors that uh, are tenured around here on to run this place. Columbus Mayor Andrew Genther said in a statement, we're pleased with the response to the retirement incentive program and expect the impact will be positive for both our officers and the residents of Columbus. The incentive is but one strategy intended to better position the division of police for the future. Ginther has proposed an additional Columbus Police Academy class, but the amount of applicants has dwindled through the years. There were more than 2,600 applicants for the Columbus Police Academy in 2016 and 625 last year. Farrell argues adding just one class won't be enough to make up for the numbers that are leaving. He worries officers won't be able to get to you as quickly as they have in the past. But there are certainly things we may not be doing anymore. Um, you know, services to the public that we've done in the past that we may not investigate or we may not come out uh, and respond to just from a simple number standpoint. And the 100 members who are selected for the program will have staggered retirements this summer. In Columbus, Lacey Crisp, 10TV News. Here's a breakdown by ranks of those who applied for the buyout program. Five commanders, 11 lieutenants, 31 sergeants, and 175 police officers. That includes FOP President Keith Farrell, who you just heard from in the story. We'll continue to follow this process as it moves forward. The Ohio Domestic Violence Network has some concerns about a new bill. House Bill 508 aims to make sure parental custody of children is equal during separations. But Michaela Deming of the ODVN says that makes it harder to protect kids. The bill actually says that every single custody case has to have a 50-50 parenting time and a 50-50 uh, decision-making split in every single case unless you can meet a clear and convincing evidence standard that it would be detrimental to the child. And Deming says that's harder to prove, which could lead to more children being stuck with the abuser. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. Brumke Recycling is planning on building a new $50 million center in Columbus. What the lieutenant governor says this change will bring to the area. There's a child in Kenya, or Sierra Leone, or India, 
or Bolivia, who you could connect with. And through Child Fund, it's possible. We may be thousands of miles apart, but we can still connect with each other. And when we do, we make things better. We connect children all around the world with what they need to grow up healthy, educated, and safe. That's what Child Fund is about. Together, we co-create, support, and sustain connections that lead to greater well-being for millions of children who live in poverty worldwide, and their families, and their communities, and their countries, and you. Join us. Together, we can make the world a better place. Two small worlds at a time. His and yours. Visit childfund.org to learn more. People do some pretty cool things in their 40s and 50s. Why should saving for retirement be any different? I mean, they go back to college. Learn new instruments. Start skateboarding. Okay, maybe that one's not for everybody, but saving for retirement is. With aceyourretirement.org, you can get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. Just have a three-minute chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach from AARP. You'll get personalized recommendations based on your input that are easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Gnarly move, Dad. Thanks, sweetie. So wherever you are in your retirement savings journey, head to aceyourretirement.org and start chatting with Avo today. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Teachers shape the future. Right now, in a classroom somewhere in the United States, there's a teacher inspiring a future scientist who'll make preventing pandemics their life's work. Sharpening the mind of an aspiring environmentalist who'll help combat climate change and generating possibilities for a student who'll be the first in their family to graduate college. Explore a career that leaves a legacy you can be proud of. Teach. Learn more and receive free support at teach.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Brumke Waste and Recycling is investing $50 million into a new Columbus facility. It's going to be called the Rumpke Recycling Resource Center. The facility will be the fifth largest recycling center in North America. Lieutenant Governor John Husted says the addition will bring needed innovation to the capital city. So why... Do I, as uh, Lieutenant Governor, take interest in this project? I will tell you three main reasons. One of them is built around innovation, the fact that I lead Innovate Ohio, and our goal is to make Ohio the most innovative entrepreneurial state in the Midwest, so this has innovation. It also has education and job opportunities that are about the future. Uh, And thirdly, it's about a sustainable supply chain. Supply chain sustainability is more and more important in economic development conversations uh, in Ohio these days. And and this project has all three elements of that together. Uh, The $50 million private investment is a big deal because it's, it's an investment in a physical facility and in technology that is going to be here uh, that will help um, serve uh, as a, is not only a place where innovation occurs, it will draw a spotlight to Ohio, will draw a spotlight to Columbus. 
The Rumkey facility will be on Joyce Avenue near Northeast Columbus. The project is expected to take at least two years with an opening date set for 2024. We thank you all for being here with us today. Take care. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. If you're worried your friend may be struggling, remember, you don't have to be there to be there. You could say how while you will get a fake tattoo. You could ask with an app if it works for you. You could write him a text or knit him a sweater. If you can't be together, you could write him a letter. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Chat on the game, kick off your flip-flops. You can ask on your couch while you binge watch. However you do it, you gotta ask a friend. And if they don't share, you can ask again. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets you talking. Reach out to a friend about their mental health. Learn how you can help at SeizeTheAwkward.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and the Jed Foundation. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Nancy Kuehl, who is the Executive Director of the Clintonville Area Business Association. How are you? I'm great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the Clintonville Area Business Association. Yes, the Clintonville Area Business Association was formed to fill a gap that was created when the previous Clintonville Chamber of Commerce disbanded, for lack of a better word. So we worked for a couple years behind the scenes and uh, created the Clintonville Area Business Association, which is a chamber of commerce. We're registered uh, as a chamber of commerce. Uh, but we went with that name to give a little more broader scope of what we can do. And for folks who maybe don't know, maybe they're new to the area, Clintonville is a neighborhood in Columbus, but is part of the city of Columbus. Yes, yes. It, it, we believe we're our own little city, but we're actually uh, part of the city of Columbus. And I saw uh, in one website that said the population for that neighborhood is about 30,000. Do you have any updates on that? No, that's pretty accurate. Okay. And there's an issue going on there that has to do with street parking. Yeah. There uh, is a proposal uh, to resurface uh, Indianola, which is a major street, which would include uh, specifically designing bike lanes in the section of Indianola that does not have that yet, which is North Broadway to Hudson. So there was a a task force made up of uh, business owners along Indianola, residents, uh, people from the area commission, you know, they did a lot of work on it, and then there were four plans presented. And based on the recommendations from the study that the city paid for, there was something, well, option four was a thing that the people made concessions on and, and came together and said, we can live with this. This checks all the boxes. So that last meeting was in October of 2021, and at that point, the public information was we're going to do this option four, which is hybrid parking. 
and I'll explain a little more about that later. After that was done, the city opened to more public comment, and in November, they came back to the study group and said, oh, we've had some public comment, we're changing, we have a new option, it's option five, which was significantly different. That public comment was 180 people, and 77% of them said, oh, we want dedicated bike lanes, so out of 180 people. Then um, in December, the uh, option five was presented to the Clintonville Area Commission as this is what we're going to do. So that then raised some questions from the business owners on Indianola, a section between Midgard and Weber, a very unique little section of Clintonville businesses, one of which is the only one of two privately owned movie theaters in the state. Others are um, small, locally owned business by local residents. Many of these are not uh, businesses that someone's going to ride their bike to or walk to. One is, you might you might walk to them sometimes, but if you're going to Pennington Art Studios to buy a couple thousand dollar painting, you're not putting it on your bike or walking home with it. Mm-hmm. If you are going to um, Body Wisdom for physical therapy due to an injury, you're not riding your bike or walking. So this little section has, and also Melanie's Upholstery, which has been there forever. You're not walking in with your chair or your couch to get reupholstered. So the the study that the city paid for at the uh, beginning of the process was done by Michael Baker International and uh, that study concludes the highest overall parking utilization location occurs between Tibbet and Billford with an average occupancy at least 50%. Reducing parking in this segment would force excess vehicles to side streets or inconvenient blocks further away along Indianola Avenue although the number of available parking spaces would remain from removing parking on one side of the road seems feasible when considered the entire corridor, it is understood that removing parking on both sides within the vicinity of the existing business district would create an unacceptable burden. To alleviate this burden, a hybrid parking application was developed, and that's what was proposed in option four, which says no removal of parking between Weber and Midgard Avenue, which is where these businesses are. So this is a study that the city paid for. This was their recommendation. The, if you look at the utilization chart from the study, the utilization of parking spaces in that little business district is between 50 and 71% at all times. Then the city came out with this option five, which removes parking on one side. There, there's just a lot of questions that the business owners and residents have that aren't being answered. And from what I understand, too, part of the problem is that when some of the surveys or observations were made about parking, it was during the pandemic when there would have been fewer people out anyway than there will be in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Still, you know, uh, uh, businesses are not up to pre-pandemic levels. And these small privately owned businesses are really just, you know, hanging on and hoping to make a comeback. But if you have this significant impact, as their study shows, uh, it's going to make it hard for them. The city did, when they did their supplemental study, internal city study, they did some other counts, you know, on a Saturday morning between 8 and 9. There's nothing going on. Late evening, 11. Late evening, 7. Um, Sunday, Monday morning. That's not when people are coming to those businesses. So one of the... um, Concerns is is bike safety. 
which is a valid concern. And it's very important that none of these businesses or local residents are saying, you know, no bikes. But they're pointing out, you know, bicycle safety. If you look at the city's uh, data uh, between 2017 and 2019 on Indianola, there were no serious injuries of any type of crash. There were three minor injury suspected bicycle accidents. No one is saying it's not important to have bike safety. No one's saying people shouldn't, you know, we don't care about bikes. But what they're asking, why are you ignoring the recommendations from the engineering study that was paid for by Columbus and going with something completely different, which would in fact impact the businesses. And the idea that this parking can be accommodated on the side streets if you ever walk along those side streets of Indianola, um, between Weber and Midgard, those side streets are full already with residential parking. There's no sidewalks there. So if you're trying to pack more cars on there and have people walking in the street at night or in the afternoon to go shopping, that uh, does not increase safety. Talking with Nancy Kuehl, she's the executive director of the Clintonville Area Business Association. And this is, uh, so Indianola is the first major north-south road east of High Street. And I'm thinking you're, what, a couple of miles north of, like, the Wexner Arts Center in Ohio State and all that? Yes. Homeowners or or renters who tend to be there for a while. Okay. And uh, you've... uh, Got a petition online on uh, on change.org, and you were looking for 2,500 signatures, and as of today that we're recording this, February 16th, you're just short of 2,000, so you're getting up close to the number that you wanted to try to draw more attention to this. Yes, yeah, and that petition was started by the business owners in that section, Midgard to Weber, uh, and they have an additional 300 uh, in-person signatures, so there's 2,300 signatures what they're, and what they're saying is hold up a minute wait a minute what happened to this option for that was recommended by the uh study that the city paid for where did that go let's talk about this well i had a conversation yesterday with some people from the city planning department and at the end it's, i said so, so it sounds like you're open to some more discussion uh with the business owner sure we'll meet and talk but we're not changing anything so that doesn't mean you're open to discussion. So when does the time frame run out for all this and all this gets done? The project's uh, slated to happen in 2024. When it goes to design, that tends to be where they say, okay, we can't do anything. But no one has said when that's happening, as far as I'm aware of. I don't know when that's happening. Okay. And I uh, talked to some other people in planning in, in different districts, and, and they said, no, if you're in design, that's when you can make some changes. When you think about this happening in 2024, it may seem like it's a long way out, and yet for planning purposes and for businesses that may move in or out, they need to know this information well ahead of time. Yes. You know, it's not something you can do at the very very last minute. Folks who are listening, if you want them to get involved or, or to become more knowledgeable about the situation, uh, what is it that you recommend? One, I would go to uh, the Clintonville Area Business Association website, Click on the uh, link for the petition, and you can read about that. And if you choose to sign that, that's great. Uh, that would be appreciated. You know, it's, it, it, it's, people have a lot going on. If you want to go and um, click the link on the city's website 
for all the information on this, the traffic studies, the results, the public comment. I mean, it's all there for people to read if they would like to do that. Okay. Talking with Nancy Kuehl, she's executive director of the Clintonville Area Business Association. How are uh, things doing business-wise in Clintonville where, you know, the pandemic, for the moment anyway, seems to be waning, but we've kind of been in this position before. What what does the future look like for Clintonville? Well, hopeful, for sure. Um, you know, we as an organization are focusing on what we can do to support businesses through this period of time, because things aren't going to go back to normal, because uh, we don't know what that looks like. And it's going to take time to get to where businesses were before this as far as revenue and things. But we're reaching out to the, what, what, what you need from us? How can we support you? It's a, it's a close-knit community, especially the small business owners. Everybody um, is connected and tries to support one another. So um, I would say, on the whole, things are looking, looking up. It's a lot of restaurants and uh, businesses like that that can be that were heavily impacted by the pandemic have, for the most part, have they survived uh, as well as you could have hoped? Um, they're there. They're still there. The businesses we've talked to, you know, they've had to pivot and come up with new ideas and new ways to do things. Um, but again, community support is really strong. So during the shutdown, people did a lot of uh, ordering out, um, picking up food to go. Community supporting the businesses, they pivoted on some things. Uh, as CABA members, they have access to some member benefits that can, especially um, the smaller businesses in the area, access to benefits for their business that can help their bottom line. You know, reduce their expenses, save on on things like insurance, utility usage, tax credits for using gas if you cook with gas in your restaurant. There's a lot of things available. Uh, that if you're running your small business, you don't have time to go look for that. So we feel that uh, we provide that um, support by having that information available and share that with the businesses. You know, when you talk about the short north, Clintonville and Worthington, it's just, a, uh, to me, a wonderful stretch of, uh, mm-hmm. of a mixture of, of just general living and the business community. It's just a, a great area of Columbus. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And interestingly, um, in that stretch, if we're, you know, if we're focusing on safety, High Street in Clintonville is the only area of High Street where the speed limit's 35, not 25. It's 25 in the short north, it's 25 in Worthington, mm-hmm. but in Clintonville it's 35. And that pretty much translates to about 46 to 50. Um, so that is another thing, you know, speed on these roads, on Indian Owned High Street, the main roads. That is an issue that needs to be addressed, maybe even more than parking. When you're driving through there, you get a sense that it's kind of opening up, maybe, compared to downtown Worthington and the short north, but in reality, it's not. Right, right. So, And that's something that's been said by the businesses all along. We'd like this to be a place where people come to uh, eat, shop, visit, rather than just drive through really fast to somewhere else. Right. <laughs> Nancy Kuehl, Executive Director, Clintonville Area Business Association. Anything else you'd like to add? Uh, just, Dave, I really appreciate the opportunity to share this information. Um, I try to be factual because, you know, things in, get all mishmashed, turned around. People say things, people get outraged. Um, if we could just stick to the facts and have 
civil conversation and look for things, uh, solutions that will be of benefit to all, uh, I think that's a great way to move forward. Okay, uh, Nancy, thanks so much for your time today and good luck. All right, thank you, Dave. Have a great day. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.